You're listening to Your Woo Woo Best Friend, a no BS approach to wellness, spirituality, manifestation, and all things mystical. Hello, this is Andy, and this is Your Woo Woo Best Friend. Welcome back to the show. I am happy to have a guest with us today. Before we get started, I wanted to share this brief exercise with you. It's a vision casting practice. We are moving towards the fall equinox for those of us in the Northern Hemisphere, the vernal equinox for those on the other side of the planet. And no matter which side of the planet you may be residing on or spending your time in, this practice is a really wonderful practice when the seasons are changing. This vision casting practice is all about amplifying the power of your own magnetism. So here's what you're going to do. You're going to start by spending a few moments tuning into yourself. And you can do this in any way that works for you. So that could be meditating or dancing or journaling or going on a walk or taking a long delicious bath. It's not about perfection. The goal is to let the thoughts of the day go. I was listening to a podcast this morning. It was Glennon Doyle's most recent episode. I saw someone share it on social and tuned in by their recommendation. And Glennon was talking about this idea of having two minds And then she moved through this conversation of it really not being that we have multiple minds going on. It's really that we have ourself, our soul, and then the mind. And who we are, the I am, is the self and the soul. And those thoughts, if you can imagine that they are simply something outside of us, that is oftentimes intentionally trying to keep us safe, but unintentionally creating a bit of crazy for us. We're going to do everything we can in this practice by tuning into self and letting what's often called the monkey mind, letting that mind go. So to know that you've tuned into self Become aware of your thoughts. If you are aware of your thoughts, you cannot be the thought. So spend just a moment or two or five or whatever you need getting tuned into self. Next, cast the ideal vision for your future. See your dream life. Notice, how are you spending your time this upcoming season? Who is there with you? What are you celebrating? Feel into that celebration. How does that celebration feel? How does it feel in your body? How does it feel on your skin? How does it smell? What does it look like? What does it sound like? Really feel into the celebration Notice, how have you shifted your limitations? What are you observing in this new reality? What delights you about this vision? Once you've walked through these questions, 
If you're driving or on a walk while you're listening to this episode, go home later today and journal about what is coming up for you. And then as we move into this new season, come back to this vision often. Perhaps write it out on a note and keep it on your bedside and then read it in the morning and again before bed. Allow yourself to dream big with no limitations and find joy and what's in the ether for you. It's out there. It is for you. If you find this practice helpful, let me know. And definitely let me know what you're manifesting, what you are calling in this season to come. As you put this dream into action, if you need some support, the Manifestation Blueprint is now officially open again for the final time this year, our four-module self-guided virtual course, which is designed to teach mystically-minded people how to create a personalized plan that makes life more abundant and utterly magical, this course is for you. It is completely self-guided, like I said, so you can do this anytime you want. We will have one live session where you can join me for some good Q&A time and ask any questions about the things that would help you to up-level. Look, you are gifted. You are talented. You are magical. You are beautiful. You are astounding. And this course is all about helping you to take life to that next level to your dream level of living, okay? If you've taken this course before, which I know many of you have, you will be invited to the live session and I hope you'll come and share your stories about what you've been manifesting, what you've been calling in. And if you have not taken this course and you have been thinking about it, there is a special price right now as we open the doors and the course begins on the Equinox. All right? All right, my friends, if you have questions about it, send me a message and I'm happy to chat with you and give you all the details. There's also a link in the show notes for our complimentary, aka free manifestation masterclass. We've got all sorts of free resources in this community. You guys know I love to share as much as I possibly can. So we have the manifestation masterclass available for free. We have the eight step guide available for free. The next level is the manifestation blueprint. Okay. One more thing before we get into the episode and before I introduce you to our guest today. As you know, this podcast is completely self-supported and self-produced. If you are loving this show, if it is something that you come back to time and time again, and it is helping you in your life to create new strategies, to try out new things, to try out new modalities, to experience people that help you to change your mind, we would love it. My small team and I, we would love it if you could leave us a review. That is the way that we have the opportunity to get more eyes on the show. We've been producing this show for over a year now. We have not accepted any ad revenue, any sponsorships, at this point. Next year, we'll be going into season three, and that will be the first time that we start to open up to that possibility. And in order to fund this show, which we have been doing from a self-funded 
perspective up until now in order to continue to produce high quality content and create a great show for you every single week, which we don't take a week off. We're like here for it. We love it. We're in it. In order for us to do that, we would love to be able to get some super aligned sponsors for season three. And in order to do that, we need more eyes on the show. And a part of that is by getting more reviews. Reviews is the number one way you can support us. So if you can take a moment, pause this episode, drop into the review section on whatever app you're listening on, that would be amazing. If you're listening on an app that does not have the ability for you to leave a review to rate and review the show, which I know some of them do not, if you could share the show in your social media to tell people that you know and love about it, that would be amazing as well. If you would be so beautifully kind as to do both of those things, it would completely make my week. Every time I see a review come through, I read it, I share it with my team, I share it with Ben who produces our show, Samantha who helps me to create all the marketing materials, she and I and Ben, we all celebrate. We are so excited to see the reviews come through and so I kindly ask you if you believe that this show is worthy of that and you would like to see us continue to create great episodes for you week over week over week, a review and a share on social would be incredible. We appreciate it so, so much. Okay, so let's get into this episode and let's meet our guest, shall we? Today's guest is truly the definition of the modern day renaissance human being. My guest is Jesse Finkelstein, a doctoral student in clinical psychology at Rutgers University and a DBT therapist, which we'll talk about what that is in the episode. He is also the creator of the Game of Real Life, published by Penguin Random House this past spring, a one-of-a-kind card game rooted in dialectical behavior therapy. The Game of Real Life is a fun and accessible way to learn how to cope effectively and achieve your goals within the framework of a card game. How cool is that? And really necessary. Based on the principles of DBT, the game offers skills to increase the quality of relationships, develop mindfulness, reduce stress, and prevent burnout. Here's the cool thing about Jesse. Jesse grew up on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, where he was exposed to many cultural institutions and experiences. And then he spent 15 years as a graphic designer, an illustrator, and a creative director. And he loved working in design. And you can see that in the game. It's it's incredibly beautifully designed. It's just so well designed. It's so it's so cool just cool. That's the best way I can describe it. And he longed for a practice that engaged more directly with mental health and well-being. He is clearly such a sensitive soul, and you'll get that from him so, so fully when you meet him in just a moment. And his interest in that work led him on this path to becoming a clinical psychologist. He's a researcher and a clinician, at Rutgers, and his main areas of research include the use of technology and new media to deliver effective psychotherapeutic interventions. 
Jesse is going to be conducting his doctoral internship training at the prestigious Albert Einstein College of Medicine. And simultaneously to his doctoral training, he is also receiving a mindfulness teacher training certification from the mindfulness meditation teacher program led by Dr. Tara Brock and Jack Cornfield. Just so much good stuff. I love this conversation. We're going to talk about all sorts of things, all sorts of modalities that we've tried out. And without further ado, let's get into it. Welcome my new friend, Jesse Finkelstein to the show. Hey, Jesse, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So thrilled to have you. It's my pleasure. This is a conversation I have been looking forward to very much. You, you're, you're so interesting. You've done so many things. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, what better compliment is there than to be interesting, right? Like, yeah. you know. In, well, it's. Uh, yes. It's true. We, we, I've it's lived true. a life. <laughs> yeah, you have lived a life. So let's start there. Tell me a bit about your story. So here's what I know thus far. You grew up in Manhattan. Yeah. You spent like yeah. 15 plus years as a designer, illustrator, a creative director. You made a major pivot to engage more directly with mental health and well-being. You've got a beautiful, mm-hmm. a, a beautiful things that are coming out into the world. Left and right, you're doing meditation training. You are and a doctoral program. So how did you get here? Tell me, tell me all the things. Oh my gosh. It's a really good question. How did I get here? I, so I, hmm, I will say that for most of my adult life, I was working in the design business world and it was gratifying and wonderful in many ways. I loved collaborating with artists. I loved seeing sort of material objects being produced by the things that were in my mind. Mm. And um, at a certain point, and it was, I mean, this, I, this is going to sound somewhat cliche, but like around 2016, around the election, I was like, and can I curse? You yes, know? you can. Oh, wonderful. I was like, holy shit. Es- especially world- when you're talking about the election, you can definitely curse. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Only opportunity I can curse. Um, I was like, holy shit, it feels like, th- like, I recognize that things have been falling apart for people for long periods of time. And I feel like that period of time threw into relief a sense of urgency and a sense of direness that, based on my own sort of, sort of privilege, I really wasn't sort of contending with. And at that point, I was like, I... I just wasn't feeling passionate about what I was doing. I was often waking up and it was fine, but I was looking at what other people were doing and I was experiencing jealousy and regret and all these sort of negative emotions that weren't a ton of fun. And so I remember thinking that there are elements about design that I love, which are sort of this this sort of sparking curiosity, um, engagement with others, And I was thinking about how I can sort of adapt some of those elements and be of a bit more sort of direct service. And psychology made sense to me. And so I decided at 35 to go back to school and to do the thing. And here I am. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a major, a major 
move to go back to school at that point in time. And it's not like you went back to school to, you know, just get a yoga teacher training. Not that that's a small thing, but, or just, uh, you know, pick up another skill set. You, you what, like, you made a major pivot. I ended like a six plus year relationship. I moved from Williamsburg to lovely New Brunswick, New Jersey. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, I made some major life changes. And um, it's so funny because like there were moments during the process where I was sort of like, like, what am I doing? And I will say it's been the best decision I've made in my whole life um, to sort of wake up every day and go to work and be in what I find to be one of the most challenging sort of intellectually and emotionally settings. And then also to feel at times like I'm helping others and I'm helping myself. It is intensely gratifying and yeah, it has sparked my creativity in all sorts of other ways that I did not anticipate. Hmm. So when you made that decision, tell me a little bit about what the next steps were. Hmm. So I remember like just saying to a group of friends, being like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go back to school for psychology. And at the time I really didn't know what that entailed. What it did entail was um, getting sort of my getting credits. So going back to sort of getting college credits because I didn't take I didn't study psychology as an undergraduate. It also meant um, doing like sort of like a clinical experience. So, you know, working with, uh, I worked for Samaritans, which is a crisis hotline, and then doing some research. Mm. So I was a a research assistant in a lab that was studying attachment and relationship between couples. So it was, it was, you know, if I, it's, it's like one of these, like, I don't have a great memory for like, like the times that I've, I don't, I just like my, I look back and I was like, oh yeah, I did this thing. And at the Mm -hmm. time it must've been a real pain in the ass, but I don't, I don't (laughs) remember it being that way. I was just like, yeah. It was like, I just, it was like one step and then the next. And then I applied to doctoral programs. Yeah. Isn't that the way though? One step and then the next. And if we can approach things that way, we can do anything. I, I, I think you're absolutely right. And, um, I, wish that I could approach the rest of my life that way. For some reason <laughs> in this domain, it came easy and I, I need to figure out how to generalize it. Mm. You've also studied mindfulness meditation with some really incredible teachers. Tell me about that experience. So I had um, been practicing Vipassana mindfulness practice since I was in college. And I had done that alongside yoga as well. Um, and I had, I've been on a number of silent retreats with folks. My first silent retreat was with, uh, Tara Brock and I, you know, mindfulness is at the core of the therapy that I now practice. And I think it is, if, if what we're trying to do is help folks move towards their goals, lead a life worth living, and make changes in their behavior so that their life 
is fulfilling, then it demands that we are mindful of whatever current habits, whatever current behaviors we're engaging in that we want to change. We can't change what we don't know. And I think I understood that kind of early on with mindfulness and it spoke Mm -hmm. to me in that way. And then at, so what I, I, I have studied intensely and am now, I, I practice dialectical behavior therapy and the therapy, the core of the therapy is mindfulness. So in, in the process of sort of studying and delivering the therapy, I thought to myself, I want to have a more sort of extensive, in-depth understanding of mindfulness. So Tara Brock and Jack Cornfield, sort of these pillars in the mindfulness community, started a mindfulness teacher training. And so uh, about two years ago, I applied and, you know, in tandem with graduate school, began doing that as well. Because I wanted to sort of flesh out and learn how to communicate mindfulness practices outside of the therapeutic setting, sort of to help me when I'm working with patients and clients. Tell me a little bit more about about DBT specifically. Absolutely. And I can, you're going to have to stop me at a certain point because I can, (laughs) this is like a topic that I am deeply passionate about and can go on and on about. So DBT was started in, was developed in the 1980s by Marshall Linehan. And it was developed for folks who were experiencing uh, suicidal behaviors and non-suicidal self-interest behaviors. And when she was looking to get funding from the government, she had to classify a diagnosis or associate a diagnosis with that. And so it became the premier treatment for folks with borderline personality disorder. Mm. Since then, it has gone on to sort of find uh, evidence for treatment for all sorts of other sort of complex comorbid mental health issues, including uh, treatment-resistant depression, PTSD, binge eating disorder, and the, the general idea behind DBT is that um, there, we tend to, there are folks who are perhaps born with a predisposition for feeling intense emotions. And what that can look like is when they experience an intense emotion, it will last for a long time. And it may take it a lo- them a long time for that emotion to sort of return to baseline. And they feel it really intensely. It's like zero to 10 really fast. And that sort of emotional vulnerability interacts with a invalidating environment, an, inval- an environment that communicates to them that what they're feeling is somehow wrong or mm-hmm. shameful. And so folks end up sort of developing all these sort of ineffective strategies to cope with that dysregulation. And those ineffective strategies can look like self-harm, it can look like substance use, it can look like any sort of sort of avoidance strategy that a person may engage in to relieve themselves of that difficult emotion. And so what I have found that, you know, whether I'm working with a, a, a patient or client who has been diagnosed with BPD or not, at the heart of most of our suffering is our unwillingness to experience our emotions. Mm. 
Yeah. That emotional avoidance is like that resistance to emotional experiencing is at the heart of our suffering for the most part. Yeah. I, I mean, that's a conversation I have found myself in often lately is hmm. the validity of feelings and allowing ourselves to feel our feelings and acknowledge what they are and accept what they are. How does one start to do that? Yeah. I, 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 can I ask, like, I'm curious, like, what is like the yeah. conversations in the way that you've been thinking about it? How have you been thinking about it? Yeah. I think what's been coming up in my circles and my community is we are obviously experiencing a lot of trauma in the world and we're experiencing a collective trauma, a global trauma. And many folks are experiencing personal traumas at the same time that they're experiencing these collective and global traumas and just trying to sort out how do I, how do I go about my day and still, still feel joy and still feel happiness and experience life despite those traumas and how do I begin to acknowledge that the stories that I've experienced in my life are in fact my story, but I can also begin to move out of those stories and create mm -hmm. a new path. I, I'm actually, I'm hosting a, a workshop next, in the next couple of weeks that's called Feelings Are Valid. And that's literally what we're coming together to do is talk about our feelings and then do some mindful mindfulness meditation to just sit with our feelings. And the intention isn't necessarily to have, it isn't a therapy session and the intention isn't to come out with some sort of really incredible conclusion of those feelings. It's really about just sitting with feelings. I, I love that you're hosting such a practice. Um, and so I, there, I think there are two things that I want to pick up on on what you just said that I really loved. One, which is sort of talking about the validity of feelings and two, sort of talking about this sort of how to sit with the fact that our reality right now and that for many of us right now, we're living in hell. Yeah. Like it is, it is deeply painful times. And so I, the first thing is talking about the validity of feelings. So feelings are, they're valid, right? They're the ways that our minds help us make sense of our world. Now, that is different than saying that an overt behavior or an action is valid. Mm. How I may feel something like, you know, if you and I are having this conversation and let's say I feel, um, I don't know, guilt or something, based on my history, based on my experience, based on all the things that I know, right, that, that, that feeling is valid. This is what's coming up for me right, right now. And... I have a choice on how I want to behave based on that emotion. I have the choice whether or not I want to act on that emotion. And I think that's where the question of validity comes into is really salient. And I sort of, sort of follow that line of thinking, which is I find that and to the, my earlier point that one of the greatest sources of suffering is when folks 
invalidate their emotional experience. When they say to themselves, oh, I shouldn't feel this way, or, oh, I'm overreacting, or I'm, I'm such a baby. And oftentimes those are things that other people will tell us and somehow we've internalized that sort of negative talk. And it, at the end of the day, and I'll, I'm just going to speak to folks who maybe are like, oh, and I love, I love woo-woo. Like this is some woo-woo, like, oh, all feelings are valid. You know, it, it, even if you don't buy that, let me just put it like this. When we do not, when we invalidate our emotional experience, when we say that what we're feeling is wrong, what I can promise you is that it's going to intensify your negative emotional experience. Oftentimes that's gonna accompany feelings of shame. It's gonna prolong that negative emotion that you're already feeling. And it's not gonna help you in any way move towards what your life worth living goals are. It's just gonna be a way that you're gonna beat yourself up. Mm, so true. So true. Yeah. And it's, it's sometimes I think what happens is we have feelings about things that we see the gravity of what's happening in the world. And, you know, this has been going on before things got really dark. We've all, you know, we've experienced this no matter the level of stuff. And then we look at our lives and we're like, okay, but like, I kind of, I'm okay. I'm like making it. I have like a I have like a roof over my head. I have like the things I need to like get through the day. I've got a warm meal at night and a place to sleep that's comfortable. And so then we start to think like, who am I to have these sort of emotions going on when there's so much other, tra so much more tragedy in the world? Who am I to think that this is okay for me to feel this way? And then in my experience, at least personally, and then with folks and this community and, and people I've spent time with in gatherings and workshops, then we really start to create this shame story because we don't think that we are worthy of having those feelings. I The, the number of folks who have come into therapy who are like, oh, but people have it worse than me. I just feel like such a baby. And yeah. it's, you know, so I think about it in, in two ways. One, which is like, okay, you're having the thought that other people, like, that you're a baby. Okay, you can notice that thought as a thought. And at the end of the day, what is your goal? If your goal is to decrease your suffering, to be more available for other people in your life, then you battling with this thought about how you're such a baby is not going to help you. Mm. The other way I look at it is it's avoidance. You telling yourself you're a baby for feeling this way is simply a way of distracting yourself from the pain and suffering you're experiencing in that moment. You are not allowing yourself to feel it. Doesn't mean, and when, and here's the thing, just because you tell yourself you shouldn't have it doesn't mean that's going to make it go away. That's not how emotions work. That's not how our brains work. So you can, you can shame yourself all you want. Guess what? it's going to stick around the more unwilling you are to actually acknowledge and sit with the emotion. Mm. When we begin to acknowledge and accept emotions and our feelings, how does that support us in two things, beginning to find our own transformation, but then also supporting us? How does that support us? And then validating how 
others feel around us and helping them to evolve? Oh, I love that question. So let me make sure I understand. So basically, once we have sort of acknowledged and allowed for that emotion, mm-hmm. what do we do next? Yeah, what do we extent? do next? Yeah. And then also, how do we help others who we also see, in, like who are having trouble accepting their emotions? Yeah. Those. Okay. So, you know, what to do next will likely depend on the situation and what your goals are. So in DBT, we orient the treatment around what a client's goals are. What are the things that you need to do to make your life worth living? If your goals are to participate in climate activism, okay. If your goals are to, you know, find yourself a new job, okay. And then what we look at is what are, what's getting in the way of those goals. And for instance, if an unwillingness to tolerate your own emotions is preventing you from taking those steps, then we're going to practice some mindfulness of current emotions. We're going to practice allowing, accepting those emotions to be there. And what we know about emotions is they don't last very long. So you can ride the wave of the emotion And once it recedes, you can then proceed to do what it is effective for you in your life. And that can look like any number of things. Now, in terms of helping others, I think it's something that you had said earlier, which is validation is is crucial. And validation can look like, you know, saying any number of things like, oh, it makes sense to me why you're feeling this way. Given everything that I know about you, given your history, it makes complete sense why you're experiencing sadness right now. And so at times, helping other folks put words to their experience, as well as let them know that what they're experiencing is valid, is real for them, I think is hugely important. Mm, So important. Okay, I want to ask you a question about pain and grief and loss, those types of emotions. I love Abraham Hicks, and Abraham Hicks says, you can't put a problem into the vortex without a solution being present as well. Why do the same things that cause us pain or grief also help to reveal what's important to us? Mm. If, if something, if something is unimportant to you, if it, if it is not something that you value, then the absence of that thing won't cause you any pain. So for me, connection is really important. I, it is something that I value connection with others. And I notice that if I go for a period of time without feeling connected to my friends, my family, other people, I'll become sad. And I'll become, you know, kind of depressed and mostly anxious. Like, what's wrong with me? Where am I? Like, you know, why? Like, what's happening? And so the flip side of our values is our pain. Because again, 
if something is getting in the way of something that's important to you, it reveals to you that this is important because it's painful. Yeah. Uh, so, so important to think about. So good. What is, when we're considering our thoughts, how do we identify helpful thoughts versus unhelpful thoughts so that we can become more intentional about the internal dialogue we're having? Yeah, I, you know, I think one thing which like has been really sort of um, huge for me in my own sort of process of therapy and delivering therapy is the acknowledgement that thoughts are just neurons firing in the brain. It's like if we could all hold our thoughts a little less preciously, it would make all the difference. And so going back to you were talking about trauma and sort of like helping folks at times um, become less fused to those stories that they tell themselves. And in many ways, that's what trauma can look like, right? It's like this thing happens and all of a sudden we become, we, we grasp onto, okay, this is how the world is. Mm -hmm. The world is dangerous. Or I'm a shameful being because I brought this thing onto me. And we're gripping onto this thought so tightly that we're no longer sort of open to an infinite n a number of ways of experiencing and thinking about the world. All of a sudden, our world becomes very tiny and locked into this idea of how things are. When again, it's like, we're all living in like a fucking matrix. Like this is just like, we're mirroring the matrix of our own mind. Like this is just, again, just neurons firing. And so I think when we sort of are, can find that distance, that relationship to thoughts, like just observing and noticing them, we can then choose to pick, okay, is this thought, helping me move towards my goals? Or is this thought just causing me suffering? And we can be more deliberate. We can play with thoughts. We can be curious about them instead of grasping so tightly to, this is the way life is. This is the rule. There's nothing else. Is that making sense? Yeah, totally. It's bringing me back to, okay, I went to this series of workshops many, many years ago, probably like 10, 10 years ago. And it was pretty woo-woo. It's called Landmark. I'm sure you know of it. It's, um, it's, it's pretty woo. There are people like either are into it or they're like, you guys are crazy what you're doing in there. So I got a lot out of it. But there, I remember walking into the classroom on day one and there's like a single chalkboard and like that's it. And then it's just like this really like aggressively like empty room with like fluorescent lights and it's very cold and it's like very, it's just, it's not a nice place to spend a lot of time. So I was going to be spending a lot of time in this room over the course of these days. But on the chalkboard, it said, everything is empty and meaningless. And that's where we were starting from, that everything is empty and meaningless. People were kind of pissed off. They're like sitting down and they're like, I am bringing everything that I've carried in my life into this room and on the chalkboard, it's you're telling me that it's all empty and meaningless. So it was a really weird place to start. But the conversation, of course, went to, we have an opportunity to look at the stories that we've 
carried into this room up until this point in our life. And we have applied the meaning to those stories that we are taking forward as we live in this present moment and going forward. And we have an opportunity to change the story, create new meaning, or do whatever we want with it because it's all ultimately empty and meaningless until we apply the meaning to it. And so there were people in that room that had had incredibly horrific life experiences. And they were very much like, I don't know how I will go on. And I have not known how to go on since this thing happened, whatever the thing was for them. And that moment as we started that day was this opportunity to reset how how each of us were going to feel, of course, but then also the thoughts that we were going to carry forward in our life. And for me, that was that experience was incredibly powerful because it all of a sudden I like had this permission to create new meaning and to experience experience and accept my feelings, but then create a new, more intentional way of going about who I would be next. So, okay. I'm having a couple of thoughts right now. One yeah. thought is if there are any podcasters listening, I want a series on Landmark. Like I want to know, <laughs> I want to know, I want to deep dive you into know what all goes of down. the Landmark experience. Yeah. Um, the second thing I'm thinking is I didn't realize, like I've known about Landmark, you know, it's, it's been in the ether. Like sure. you, know, you always know that friend that's done it. And all of a sudden it's like, they were becoming, I didn't yeah. realize that part of the principle behind it is this idea of, and what I would sort of frame it as a dialectic, that everything means nothing and we have to create meaning. Yeah. Um, which and maybe I, that's what I was really taking and someone else might have a different experience. <laughs> but well, I was like, I like what you took from it because I think that yeah. is, I think that is, I mean, so powerful, right? It's like, it's, it's, it's this thing where it's just like, it's like, fuck it, we're only here for so long. Yeah. And all of this is just sort of like these neurons firing. And I'm not saying this is easy. I'm not saying that like one day you can just snap your fingers and be like, okay, this habitual way that I've been thinking about things, I'm going to change. But what I can't, but I, but what I am suggesting is that if we sort of hold a little less tightly to these thoughts and just, and open up with a little bit more curiosity I think we're going to find less suffering. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that was my, my experience. I went through, I went through like all of the landmark stuff. I like wow. that year, I just like kept going back and was like, and I, I went in as like a participant and an observer. That's just kind of how I show up yeah. to a lot of things is like, I'm going to go yeah. in this and I'm going to do it, but I'm also just like going to watch how, watch my own experience and watch the experience of those around that me. That sounds like a healthy yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's, that's was my intention. And I really got like loud and clear that I, I was carrying this stuff into this room and there was like all sorts of ugliness that had occurred in my life. And some of it, I was an active participant in creating. And some of it was just stuff that happened to me. And that's just how life goes. And sometimes we can be in a place where just ugly stuff happens to you and that is terrible. And yet I still get to create new meaning, leaving this situation and live a life that I want to live and fulfill my desires and 
create new dreams and all of these beautiful things, despite the fact that these ugly things had happened, it doesn't have to now take the fu- my future away from me. I'm, I, I'm wondering, like, how much compassion or self-compassion was emphasized in this process? Oh, not very much. (laughs) Yeah, that's the one thing that I feel like I like. I feel like like the idea that you entered into this cold, sterile, fluorescent room. Yeah. Like, here's the thing: it's like we have to offer ourselves a ton of self compassion. Yeah. Like, we can't just expect our minds to turn into be like, okay, whatever shit happened now. Here's like, here's it's like no, it's like those experiences are painful. Yeah. And we have to be kind for the, to ourselves. We have to hold ourselves. Otherwise, we're just going to be engaging in another type of emotional avoidance. We can't pretend like that pain does not exist and continue to hurt us at times. Totally. Um, yeah. So I wouldn't I, say it's the end all be all. Do this and you will be good to go. <laughs> I think for me and I think I hope for a lot of folks that go through an experience like that. Yeah. You're engaging in all sorts of other modalities to support the self-compassion piece. There's a lot of like breaking, breaking down in that experience. And there is like this other piece. It's like everything's empty and meaningless. And then the other piece is my past constraints. I release my past constraints. My past constraints don't define me. And that piece, I was like, you know, yes, my past constraints don't define me, but I need to I need to sit with those constraints, whatever they might have been, yeah. and then create a new path forward. So, I'm just in my head. I'm I'm trying to make sense of that that <laughs> idea. My past constraints don't define me. Like I I don't like what does define me. Like I don't I I guess. So what does I don't like I I guess I don't know what that means in a way. Yeah, it's a good question. I think that there is like, there is, and this is the vibe that I, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but like, there's this aggressive sense of like, well, shit, like shit's happened. Stop being a baby. And now do what you got to do to make your life what it is. Yeah. That's how it feels there. And it's just like, it's like, like, no, like, like, and also it's like, like, Painful shit continues to happen, especially if you are a person who is subject to like state violence. Like, 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 you know, like I, I just, I, I feel like that could be interpreted incredibly invalidatingly. And, um, and, and I'm here, I'm here for the, this is so actually, and let me put this in the context of how I'm thinking about it. So when, when Marshall Linehan was developing DBT, she, was initially um, using all of these cognitive behavioral change strategies. So problem solving, folks would arrive feeling overwhelmed, feeling, you know, experiencing suicidal thoughts Mm. or engaging in suicidal behaviors. And she would work with them to say, okay, we got to change your behavior. We got to, we got to problem solve this situation. And it wouldn't work. Folks would continue to engage in these suicidal behaviors And so what was interesting is that in addition to having this training as a therapist, she also had this training as a Zen Buddhist. Hmm. 
And while she was spending time, I think it was like on one of her retreats, she realized that there was this missing link of acceptance and validation. Mm -hmm. That in order to make a change, we have to accept and validate where we are right now. Otherwise, we're making this change born out of shame and rarely do such changes tend to last. And so, you know, we have this phrase in DBT that sort of calls upon the dialectic, which is you are perfect as you are and you can do better. Mm. That both things can be true. And so it's like for folks who have been through horrific stuff, like you're doing the best that you can in this moment and you can do better. But you need to have that, that, that level of self-compassion, of self-validation in order to also make those steps towards change. Because one without the other is just a recipe for disaster, in my personal opinion. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm with else. you. Sure. Yeah, I'm with you on that. I feel like if I were to, if I were to go through an experience like the landmark experience that I went through 10 years ago to d- in today's times, I, I actually wonder how they are. Yeah. I'm so I, I wonder how they're doing it today. Anymore. Yeah. I'm s- and I'm so like, this is, and like, again, I'm just saying a deep dive <laughs> podcast series on landmark and expose. Yeah. Yeah. I, when I went through, I, I, of course, had a friend of mine that was like, I really, really think you would get so much out of this. And he also understood very, he knew me, he knows me very well and knew that I would be, I would, I would play full, full on and I would be objective. And then I started having some conversations with a couple of my mentors and some folks that I really have a lot of really great respect for. And they had been through it, but had never talked about it before. And I was like, oh, you guys did this shit too? Like you were in that room? Like, (laughs) okay. And in all of those cases and all of, all of those people would agree that that self-compassion piece is fully missing from that experience. And I wonder and hope perhaps if they are continuing to offer that sort of experience today that that may be something that they evolve into well i wonder so in my mind and again i i'm not well educated on this but in my mind one of the things that i love about dbt is that and it goes back to what sort of why i was talking about emotion dysregulation in that who we like our our emotions our experience are in transaction with our environment So if we are feeling something and we are then invalidated by our environment, if we're told that what we're feeling is not real, unimportant, wrong, that's going to cause us or will tend to cause us some amount of dysregulation of pain and suffering. And so, you know, invalidation can look like all sorts of things. It can look like racism. It can look like homophobia, transphobia. It can look like, you know... Uh, economic inequity, like any ways that we convey to a person that somehow their humanness, their experience is invalid. And so I do think that maybe some of these sort of organizations that were super change focused, oftentimes there was a a non-acknowledgement of these sort of 
transactional forces, that we don't exist in a vacuum. We can't just pick ourselves up by our bootstraps and just make the changes. That in fact, our environment is impacting us in ways that can be painful. Mm-hmm. And we can't just ignore that. Yeah, yeah. It's so important. And it also, for me, it's always been a reminder because I have been so willing to participate in just a variety of different approaches to healing and self-care and digging through traumas and all of these things. I, I have always approached these practices from a place of participating and being an objective observer and Mm-hmm. dissecting a little bit of what's working for me and what isn't working for me yeah. and taking the parts that that apply to me and work for me and then letting the parts that don't live somewhere else. There's a there's a book that I was reading recently. It's called um it's called Cultish. It's by Amanda Montel. Do you know about this book? No. And it, it goes through a lot of these it will, it goes obviously it tells stories of many cults, but it goes through th- yeah. through some other things too. Like okay. one of the practices that I I love is kundalini yoga, which in some circles could be very cultish and has been very cultish. And I, I take what works for me out of kundalini yoga, like the breath work and the meditation and some of the, the mantras and the mudras and the yoga components that really suit me. And I take that and I practice that. And some of the things that were a part of that lineage that don't suit me, I'm like, no, not for me. Right. It's like, not for me. And I think with this show, one of the things that it was originally intended to do was bring forward ideas and practices and modalities and all sorts of different ways of connecting to self and taking care of self and offering those up so that our very educated listeners could make decisions about what what they would like to try and what works Mm -hmm. for them. And yeah, I think that's what I have to say about that. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think that you're exact. So, I mean, I'm, I, I used to go to this yoga studio here in New York that developed a reputation for being very cultish. And I remember mm-hmm. thinking like along those same lines of like, like, what am I getting out of this and what am I not? Yeah. Um, and I, and, and even in DBT, you know, DBT, we have a ton of skills across like different modules. There's like mindfulness skills, interpersonal effectiveness, distress tolerance, emotion regulation. And not every skill is going to sit with every person. And so, you know, it is this process of thinking about what works for you, what fits within your life. And then the other stuff, you know, maintaining a, you know, curious and like whatever attitude you need to in order to get by. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, it's, I mean, and the other thing is, is like, you know, it's like, I, like for me, when it comes down to this, some of this stuff, like I, I do fall. And I think that this may be controversial to some folks, like evidence-based therapies. Like I want to see the research. I want to know that this has been validated through study, through randomized controlled trials some people may, that might not be the thing, but every, we all have to choose sort of our metrics for how we want to evaluate whether we want to bring something in our life or not. Yeah. And all along the way, remembering that our feelings are incredibly valid and self-compassion is incredibly important. 
just tied that up so beautifully. It's not my first day. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I do it's have I have a, a question for you. I want to talk yeah. about the game, but I have a question yeah. for you about a self-compassion toolbox. Take us through how to create a self-compassion toolbox. Mm. Mm, I love a self-compassion toolbox. I mean, I think that there are different sort of ways that we can sort of target self-compassion, right? I think there are very active, like overt behaviors that we can engage in. Like for instance, like self-soothing by accessing and targeting different um, sensations, like looking at beautiful pictures, whether that's going for a walk, uh, listening to music that we find restorative, Um, you know, putting on some nice lotion. That's one way. I also think self-compassion can look like just treating yourself well, getting proper sleep, um, you know, you know, eating foods that you find nourishing and health and, and, and healthful. Um, so there's a, and then there's, I think the other component, which is sort of targeting thoughts and emotions. So, and I think this is where validation comes back in, which is, when you experience an emotion, rather than telling yourself that it's bad or wrong, communicating to yourself, it's okay, that emotions don't last forever, it won't destroy you, that it makes sense why you're feeling this way in this moment based on all the things that have come before, based on your learning history, on your genetics, etc., and that you're doing your best. So in my mind, that's like my, my little self-compassion toolbox. Yeah. Oh, I love all those things. I just did a personally and then shared this within our newsletter list, a summer reset. And we focused on the physical and then, of course, the mental, the emotional and the spiritual. And we, we kind of broke each of those categories down. And mm. the, every our listeners know about this because I've talked about it a ton. So I'm like not going to go back through it for the 50th time for them. But it was really, for me personally, it was so powerful to consider each of those components separately. Like, okay, mm-hmm. physically, how am I treating myself? What's in my refrigerator? What's my, in my environment? How am I, how am I, how's my space? Like, what is that? What is that like for me? And I love the idea of like looking at beautiful art, surrounding ourselves with some plants or flowers, just things that in our physical environment and how we're nourishing self, really considering those things. And then taking yourself through that, that process with the mental and the emotional and the spiritual too. So it's so good. And, and here I'm going to add on another incentive for folks to do this, which is, you know, create new learning is one of the most sort of metabolically taxing things that we can do in our brain to sort of lay down new neurons. It's incredibly metabolically expensive. So that means you need to be putting in a ton of deposits. If you want to like engage in new habits, if you want to, you know, engage in new ways of thinking, if you want to open up and be more creative and you're more curious about your world, you can't be running at a deficit. So if you believe that self-compassion is just this like, you know, I'm just like, oh, I, you know, I should just muscle through, set that thought aside and realize that self-compassion is actually fundamental to you achieving your goals. Mm. So good. Self-compassion is fundamental to you achieving your goals. So good. 
Okay, so tell me about tell me about the game. Tell me, sure. tell me, you're like bringing all of your things together in this beautiful, I called it a book earlier, but it's a game. It's a game. It has a booklet. It, it's a game. You know what? It's it's paper and it has words on it. Mm-hmm. So as far as I'm concerned, whatever you want to call it. Um, so the game is, it's, it's a card game. It's um, based on the principles of dialectical behavior therapy. Essentially, there are a series of fake, sometimes funny conflicts Everyone, you know, between two and six players are dealt a hand of six cards of skills. And you make an argument for why your skill is most suitable for resolving or Mm. mitigating that conflict. Cool. So it really is just like a fun, easy way for folks to practice DBT skills or to become acquainted with them in the first place. Amazing. And it's called The Game of Real Life. And where can folks find it? Uh, On my website, Talk. Uh, is good.org or any of your major retailers, Penguin Random House's website, um, you know, all, all your online places. Perfect. Perfect. I love, I love this and we'll be gifting it to all of my family members and <laughs> all the people that need to spend a little more time with these, with these sorts of ideas. It's so good. Thank you. Yes. And thank you so much for, for having me and talking with me about these, I think, very important things. Right back at you. I'm so grateful to have had you here to talk about these topics that are so incredibly important and that we so often just breeze by in our days. And if we could spend a bit more time, what a, what a delicious world we could create together. Yeah. Emotions are not things to muscle through. Go to the gym if you want to work on your muscles. <laughs> yes. Thanks so much, Jesse. Parting words of wisdom. <laughs> We're going to make sure we put that that quote as like the the lead. Go to the gym if you want to work on your muscles. Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> Got it. Oh my gosh, it's been such a treat. Thank you so much, Jesse. Such a treat. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us today, my friend. This episode has been such a joy. Jesse is truly one of the coolest, doing really incredible things, and such a testament to being able to be multi passionate, multi talented, creative in so many ways, just a variety of ways, and expressing self through whatever it is that is lighting you up in the moment. He's obviously doing the hard work, the hard work on himself and in the community and in the world that he has placed himself inside of. And these are not things that you do overnight. They're not things to take lightly, but it is powerful and important. And if something is calling to you, do it. Step your foot forward into it. And Jesse's such an inspiration for this sort of approach to living. So I hope you have been inspired. If you have been inspired by this episode, I'll ask you one more time, drop into the reviews and rate and review the show, share this show on social media, give us a tag and tag Jesse's game as well, which you can find at the on Instagram with the tag talk is good. So tag us at your woo woo BFF tag me at wee wee girl, and then go ahead and give Jesse and the game 
a tag too. We'll be back again next week with another episode. Some really incredible stuff coming up later this season. As we round out season two, I will keep that a little bit secret for now, but some really cool guests coming up. Come back again every Thursday and we will continue to bring it for you with much love. This episode is complete. See you next week. Thank you.